Welcome to Foreground, a podcast about art and artists. In this episode, Foreground's Barbara Flommer talks to artist Lorraine Bubar. So I was, you know, using the exacto knife, and then I just had this epiphany, I guess, that so many cultures in the world do paper cutting. So I just decided, oh, well, I'll just try it and see what happens. And I tried it, and I just got like completely like hooked on it. Right. But for a lot of reasons. I mean, yes, technically it seems similar to me. So instead of filling in the color with watercolor, I'm filling it in with patches of paper underneath. But I love traveling. And I, I had, especially when I was younger, traveled in a lot of Asian countries. Right. So I'm using papers that come from different Asian countries. Right. But I also always have loved folk art. I've loved craft. And so just paper cutting just fused all of that. Right. And... You know, as a woman, too, I have to say that, you know, there are so many women doing just incredibly beautiful crafts, you know, whether it was, you know, painting in China or, you know, embroidery, you know, or going back to Judy Chicago, who really right. recognized all those crafts, Miriam Shapiro. So there are all these crafts that were not like, you know, it's kind of riding that edge between high and low art and craft and fine art. And I really like kind of pushing that edge. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thrilled if I get into a craft show and I'm thrilled if I get into a fine art show. And I like, you know. Yeah. It's interesting because you really do bridge the gap. I mean, it's the ongoing conversation about what's craft and what's art and what's the difference sort of is interesting. But, I mean, I would consider you an artist who maybe uses craft technique. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. In fact, I a lot of times people ask me what I do or even on you know, my business card, whatever, I say a paper cutter. But uh-huh. that is only because I haven't found a good way, when you look at my art, to experience it, to really get that it's all cut out of paper. Right. So, I mean, more appropriate would be to say I'm a painter who uses paper as my oh, medium. Oh, well, there you go. Well, it worked but, for Matisse. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, but it worked for him when he was already like a painter. So. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's true. Well, you're already a painter. Also. <laughs> it's very interesting because there's a lot of movement in your work. And, there's a, and of course, I love your use of color and so forth. And I, I just, I think there's a, the color theory interests me. Can you talk to me at all about that? To me, one of the most fun things about working with paper, the way I do it, is color. Because you know, when I used to paint in watercolor, it's like, oh, I paint in that area and I paint it green. And then you go, oh, shoot, I wish it had been orange, but too late now. Yeah, I've, I've already messed it up. Right. <laughs> right. So this, I there's when I start out, I mean, there are a lot of areas that have negative space. Sure. And so then I just lay it on different colors and you go, ah, that like works or no that color like kills it and you know i mean going back to the teacher in me you know color is always the color is in context right and you don't really know until you experiment so this is like in the most fun way to experiment with color and sometimes i really think oh okay i'll put in like a blue sky or something and go no that kills it let's try the Orange sky. Oh, that's it. You know, oh, that's so, so it has led me to much more unpredictable color combinations. Right. Well, and I mean, uh, we're looking for our audience. We're looking at a work of Lorraine's that is uh, an image of koi fish swimming in blue water, and the koi are quite 
tangerine orange color, and the water is very, very blue. And it's a beautiful image. It's really a beautiful image. Tell me about, you know, whether you see any of your... I know you've talked about how you've been influenced by other cultures, but do you ever see any of the Dutch masters or William Morris in your work? Mm. Uh, definitely the arts and crafts movement. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, some of your paintings, you did something called Sweets, I think. Uh, it was a table and there were things falling. Uh, you remember that? Uh, that, that was a watercolor. Oh, those are um, cookies. Or oh, like those are cookies. Falling okay, off right. the table. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I saw sort of Dutch still lives in that. Yeah, I think that some of the watercolors had a little bit more of the dramatic lighting change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've gone for that part as much in mm -hmm. paper cutting, but definitely some of the watercolors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think now I'm more influenced by, well, the arts and crafts movement, mm -hmm. Japanese woodblock. Right, books. right, right. And even Indian. Mughal miniatures. Mughal painting, yeah, right. Because right. of their playing with perspective. Right. Or not playing with it. I mean, just doing it in a way that's unlike what we're used to. Yeah. yeah. But they also use the jewel tones that appear in your work. Yeah. And the, yeah, no, I, I can see that, that relationship very clearly. It's interesting. Do you think you can teach somebody to be an artist? I mean, somebody of average abilities, can they be taught to draw or paint or? Is it, do you have the talent or don't you? Well, it's like I'm musically challenged. <laughs> so people have said to me, yes, if, you know, somebody encouraged you, if you had had like voice lessons, you could learn some minimal skills. Right. Okay. You may not be like an opera singer, but right. I could have yeah. learned something. I mean, I think people are the same way about drawing. I think you can teach people some minimal skills. And then you can expand that. Like, I mean, to me, there is teaching a person to see. Mm -hmm. That's the first step. Right. So I think a lot of people don't, like, look deep enough Learning into to what's look. there. Yeah, right. The other thing is, you know, to teach being creative. Right. Is really more like taking out your sensor, which, you know, child psychologists know when, you know, in growing up. Right. That kind of kicks in. But so teaching people to let go of their sensor. And then the other thing is, again, like what we consider like good art or whatever is obviously changing. You know, yeah. you don't have to be a good drawer. Right, you know? right. Well, I mean, there are all these other creative outlets. So I think most Chagall people... Chagall was a terrible draftsman. A terrible draftsman. He was a great artist. You know, so there you go. Yeah. That's interesting, though. But, I mean, when I was in, I think, sixth grade, somebody taught me how to draw a book lying on a table in perspective, which is the one thing I can still draw. <laughs> and I've often thought, you know, I wonder if I could have done better if I'd had more lessons in that. But that was one class and one one day, and that was it. And I can still draw that book. But I think I it's funny thinking about the perspective on yeah. the book. I yeah. saw David Hockney's recent show that he had at Ellie Louver. Oh, I didn't see it. And his whole thing is, like, don't perspective, and we were talking about perspective yeah, already, right. is not a vanishing point. It's like open up your perspective this way. Right. And so if you look at the tables he drew, right. if you had been in elementary school, you know, or middle school, you know, the, and they were teaching perspective, the teacher would have said, oh my God, you got this all wrong, right. you know, <laughs> F or whatever. Yeah, right. you know? 
Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, look at Cezanne's still lives with the apples or the pears. Those right. things are all falling off right. the table. I mean, if that's your only perspective, yeah. no pun intended, uh, then you're, you're going to say he's no good. But, of course, he was a genius. That's interesting. You know, Hockney has been pursuing this whole thing about mirrors in art for a long time. And there was that movie last two years ago, Tim's Vermeer, uh, about the use of mirrors. But I think Hockney is interesting. And I think you've got something in common with him in terms of color usage. You know? Thank you. Actually, I saw there's a new documentary called Hockney. Oh, is there? That I haven't actually went to screening. I haven't seen it out. That is so playful. And playful about him and playful about his color, which is getting more exuberant. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, he did uh, the colors for Tristan and Isolde about 15 years ago at the opera yeah. uh, downtown. And I couldn't get over it. I mean, there were purples and oranges and, you know, they were really fabulous colors. And it, it didn't detract at all from the opera. I mean, the opera was still fabulous, but there was something wonderful about how he used his color. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of his anyway, but it's so interesting to me. And we do have, you know, prejudices actually in going through like school. If you even pursue art, you know, obviously, you know, the way they teach art history and you say, okay, let's stop teaching just you know, dead white men. Right. <laughs> like everything. Amen. So, and a lot of it is regional too. It's right. like even if you go, I had the chance to go to this art conference that was in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. All the artists they used as examples, I had never heard of. They were all artists from the South. Very different sensibility. They have much more value of craft, uh -huh. you know, folk art. Right. And it's like, okay, they're not talking about, like, L.A. artists here or wow. New York artists. They're wow. talking about their regional artists. Or, you know, if you go to Japan, obviously, right. they're going to talk yeah. about Japanese right. artists. Right. And I think that also is a good thing about L.A. You must have the patience of a saint to do this work, though, because... I mean, how long did that koi painting take to make? It must have been months. Yeah, I mean, the first question people usually ask is how long did they take? But now I've told you that I had worked in animation. Right, was also right. so you do have the patience of the saint is what you're telling me. You know, I spend a lot of time on the drawing first. Right. And then I actually put the drawing over the first paper. Right. And cut through my drawing and right. cut through the paper. So at those points, there's different points that I am so driven to see what the next step will be that I have to complete that first step right. that I can just, there's Power some times I can just stay up like, you know, forever. I go, oh my God, what time is it? You know? oh, so I lose myself in it. And, right. That's you great. know, recently I even thought of enrolling in a mindfulness class. And I go, why should I? <laughs> this is my I would say you are mindful. <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. Oh my so gosh. So it's my meditative state that I get into, but... It does take a lot of time. Yeah, it has to. But there are certain parts that I'm just so driven. Now, right. Some of the pieces I do are symmetrical. So I do half a drawing. Right. And I am so driven at that point to complete the part where I can open it up to right. see what the overall composition right. is. So then I get really crazy. Like, oh, my, I just have to finish. Just have to finish this. Honey, you can have dinner tomorrow. Right. <laughs> or there's some points where I, I'm driven to finish it. And so I think, okay, I'll, just another hour. Oh, just another day. Oh, a few more days. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, is it fun? Is it hard to walk like away myself. from? Yeah. I mean, when you have to walk away to go somewhere, to go on vacation, to whatever, I mean, do you have a hard time walking away when you're in the middle of something? Can you walk away? Well, I can walk away, but I try not to walk away where I've left it for two weeks right. or something. Because you lose the mojo. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a mindset. So even though you've got the drawing and you've 
you know what where the cuts are going to be. You need that mojo to keep it going. I mean, the when I do the, you know, I work out the first drawing. So the first step is kind of reproducing that drawing in the first color of paper that I use, which is kind of like the outline. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way in Japanese woodblock prints or color printing, they call it like the uh, key block, okay. where it's like the last thing they print like over the dark outline and it brings it all together. Right. I make that first and then I'm layering the paper from behind. Uh-huh. So that one step of reproducing the drawing and the colored paper is kind of not as interesting. But then I really get to play with the color. And then I really do feel like it's painting, like I'm patching brush strokes. Right. You know, looking for like, oh, even that little value of paper. Sometimes like one side of the paper is like a little bit darker and lighter. So I, you know, looking at papers all different ways, you know, wow. patching it in. Yeah. And sometimes you think, oh, that little quarter of an inch. No, that's wrong. Got to cut that. <laughs> <laughs> but do you, do you ever do anything with the stuff you cut out? Have you ever tried to use any of the materials you've cut away? It's funny you say that. I do not. Uh-huh. I mean, now I save more of the larger scraps. I used to just throw that away, but right. now I realize some of the papers I can't find anymore. So I try to save bigger pieces. But I just went to the paperwork show at the Crafts Museum. Right. And Susan Serrani, who makes books out of found books, you know, altered books. Really? She does something with the scraps. <laughs> wow. So oh, there was another artist there who also did something with the scraps. So hmm, something well, else to think about. Well, <laughs> I mean, they're such interesting shapes. I would think that the negative would be also interesting to play with. You yeah. gave me a whole new Oh, God, great. Idea. <laughs> yeah, I've caused all kinds of trouble. Right. But I, I think it's quite, you know... I don't know. I'm deeply impressed. <laughs> deeply impressed. I could just grind it up and make new paper all together. <laughs> Do you ever use rice paper, or is that too much texture? I don't use rice paper. I look for papers. Well, I look for the color. Right. But also I look for things that are pretty thin. Okay. Because after a while it does begin to Bent. hurt my hand. Oh, it hurts your um, hand. Oh, actually, they can't be so thin I use the archival glue, mm-hmm. but I don't want the glue, even if it's clear, to make like a mark. Under right. It. So right. it has to have a little bit of thickness so the glue doesn't soak through to the surface. Right. So there's kind of a balance there. I actually, about I don't know, a year or so ago, a member of this really fabulous organization that delights me called the Guild of American Paper Cutters. And huh. they're centered in Pennsylvania. Really? And it really runs the gamut of you know, contemporary artists to folk artists, you know, where they are, like that Pennsylvania, Dutch, like sure. art, sure. people in that very traditional way. So I've had different opportunities by being part of that. And uh, about a year ago, I was selected to be in this group that we were testing products for Exacto. So they would send all of us samples once a month. And then we'd have a conference call to tell them our reactions. So it was like, you know, different handles. How fun. Well, the handles really made a difference. It's like, okay, used to use that traditional just Oh, exactly. Well, yeah, no, exactly. And exactly. now they have more ergonomic, like foam cover. Nice. So that really helped. And then there's some blades that last a little longer. And, you know, I work on a self-healing cutting board, and that makes a difference. So I don't know what a self-healing oh. cutting board is. Yeah, there's is. just like these kind of mats that you can put on your drawing table when you cut with an exacto knife it like 
heals up again in a way you don't have the mark. Because if you put like a cardboard underneath, it gets entangled. Right, and right. then it takes you off track when you're trying to cut a smooth edge. This is like a Tempur-Pedic kind of concept where it bounces back. <laughs> well, I guess it's from what I, I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a handle yeah. on the concept. Oh my God. I mean, it's just a mat, so you don't see the cut. Whereas, yeah, if you did it in like cardboard or something, that it would be really track. Yeah. When I really decided to do paper cut, it was right. partly motivated by realizing that in my background is Eastern Europe, and that that is in that Judaic paper cut is part of my right, heritage, sure. and there is very few paper cuts left from that period really? of time. They just don't because they don't survive. well, they didn't mean for them to survive, and they just did it on like totally like junky paper. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's so, funny. but originally paper cuts weren't really meant to survive either. You know, they were for like decorating for holidays, right? Um, Ephemera. Yeah, interesting. But in different cultures, you know, like your family tree, like right. a lot of family trees were cut out of paper. Some like, right. little things right. glued right. into it. Right. Right. Wow. Um, we don't find that also fascinating. It, it, no, it is. It is, and it's you know, it's like um, there's very little African art made of wood that lasts any length of time because that humid climate doesn't allow wood to survive more than 150 years. It's just the reality of it. And you're right. I mean, maybe it's not meant to last forever. We have to get over this, you know, hold we think we have on the future, because we don't. If somebody were writing a big article on you, what would you want them to say? Mm. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, uh, let it go. Uh, my former husband, who was an artist, is an artist, used to say that he hoped in the future he would have, and of course this is date, dates us all, he, he would have a paragraph in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's no more Encyclopedia Britannica, but, <laughs> That's right. but, but he, he, got he, he got stuck in time. But you get the concept. I mean, do you have a dream of what you'd like somebody to, to write about you? Big article oh, North America? One, there was one point that I was going to talk about, I was going to talk about, to answer. Well, yes, I would like more recognition. Sure. I feel like, I mean, I, I had a momentum with my watercolors, and then it kind of, I stopped trying to show as much because I had my kids. I was right, sure. Mad, and then I really put a lot of energy into teaching, which was very creative. You know, I love the process, but now that I'm really embracing um, this as my career, um, yeah, I'd like more recognition. Sure. So, you know, so I have personal goals of, trying to show other places, you know, get invited to show in the museum. Well, you got invited to do the Denali thing. You should talk oh, about that. Yeah, so... Which is more, a big honor. Yeah, do more artists in residency. So that what's unique about the park service, I mean, some artists in residencies are more like communities where artists get together and right. talk. This is really just the opportunity to get inspired by the place, which actually works out so beautifully because... In my free time, Ron and I love hiking and traveling, and so it takes us to places that we wouldn't ordinarily get to. So it's the perfect combination. So I wasn't actually obligated to do art in the place. Right. When I got back to my studio, I let it all filter. And then the park service, there's about 50 parks in the country that offer the programs, and every one is totally different. Really? Like a separate application process and separate, you know, different things that you have to do. So my obligation there was I was in the park for 10 days. We just hiked every day, just totally soaked in Alaska. Were you like taking so photographs? I took a lot of pictures. Because okay. actually, 
I kind of approach my compositions as collaging together imagery. Okay. And then, you know, creating the overall composition. Right. So, and a lot of times now, <laughs> when I first started, even when I worked in watercolor, it's like I wanted to draw something that I wasn't in my head to draw, of course I would find a reference. Find a reference. So it was mostly then photographing something, but now you just Google whatever. (laughs) So but there I was taking a million photographs of wildflowers and the animal life and the mountains and things, skies and things like that. So then I piece them all together into the composition. For all the park service, you need to donate a piece to their collection. So I mean that alone the Park Service has How this nice amazing art collection. Right. And in Denali, they have two beautiful galleries. And the artwork that we had seen from past artists and residents were so beautiful. And it ranged from like basket weavers to fiber artists to painters to wow. photographers. So I felt very honored to be in That's very in nice. Yeah. And then I did a public workshop for uh-huh. people. But they put us up in a location that nobody else really gets to stay in at all because in the park there's a road that's right. a public road. Right. And you can only drive your own car like 16 miles into the park. And if you want to go further in the park, you get on the public, you know, the park bus that right. takes you to the end. Right. But even most people don't go all the way to the end because that would take like the entire day to take it to the end. And Get that back. Right. But you know, if you're on the bus, then the bus driver will stop. You know, everybody's like, oh, there's a bear. So he leans out the window on that side, or there's this, and you lean out that side. But we got to have our own car, which is nice. absolutely unheard of in the park. So, you know, we could like at night just drive off and watch for animals. And then we were on this road. If you want to, be further into the park. Basically, you get on the bus and you can camp only about like 30 miles into the park or you go backpacking. Right, right. But we were at this cabin that was built in the 1920s that was at like halfway, like mile 43. Wow. So when at night... You were all by yourself. Yeah, there was nobody else in the park. I so think that might like be a little cool. scary. But <laughs> well, they led us to believe that we would be having like you know, grizzly bears, like, knocking on our <laughs> door, but we didn't. We did get some good sightings of grizzly bears, but not right. Oh, good. Cat. Uh, yeah, I don't want to mess But uh, it was just such a unique wow. experience. Wow. Not for everyone, because there was no electricity or running water. Oh, not for me at we all. Had to bring, <laughs> we had to bring all our food, um, but it was, like, perfect for us. We just, wow. like, walked out the door and just started hiking. It was wow. great. That's amazing. So, That's you know, amazing. The Park Service has always supported artists being there, and the artists have inspired people to go to the national parks. So it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Did they ever do a publication of the things in their collection? I mean, do they every 10 years ever publish their... They should. Yeah, you know what? They I'd were, love to right? see that. They were working on having some kind of online book. Right. This is just an alley. Right. Those people seem very proactive about right. promoting the program. Right. I don't know how the other parks are. Uh-huh. So that was like in the works. Right. So That's I don't know what, I didn't really follow up to see how far they got in that process. I think you need a stamp. You should have a postal stamp. Part of the park <laughs> system, now you need a stamp. Everything will be good. <laughs> a stamp. That's a good goal. I like it. <laughs> like, well, you know, they did a, a competition, uh, the Postal Service did a competition uh, 15 years ago for people who did duct tape. They do that. 
Oh yeah. my God, that art is incredible. It is incredible. <laughs> I mean, I'm not necessarily a collector of duck paintings, but wow, it was fabulous. See, there comes back to our conversation, the artwork on those duck competitions. Maybe I've seen it in Smithsonian Magazine. Really. Yeah, some of them. Um, and so if you were in a gallery in L.A., maybe you would go like, no, duck art is not like... Yeah, not that art. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like the trend, you know? Yeah, right. But it's like, how could you say that that art isn't, you know, just totally amazing? It's so totally that's why I think we shouldn't make such value judgments. Well, no, no, I totally art. agree with you. I, I do. I totally agree with you. And, you know, having been from the East Coast my whole life until 21 years ago, I came here with that attitude. And boy, did I get over it fast. I really did. I mean, I, I wasn't here more than two or three years before I realized that is just a misperception. And it's some sort of ego-driven thing that the East Coast has over the West Coast. And it's without portfolio. I mean, it just isn't true. It just isn't true. So anyway. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now we're done. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Lorraine. This was great. To learn more about the artist's works, visit LorraineBubar.com. And check out the foreground mini-mag link in the show notes to this podcast.